reading about you, uh, and, and it seems like you had an, an interest in the arts at a very early age, and I, I'm wondering where that came from. I've always been involved in the arts because um, my father was a, a cartoonist for the New Yorker magazine as well as a, a painter. Uh, my mother was a painter. My uh, grandfather was uh, an illustrator and a painter. My, I had a, a two aunts who were painters. I had an uncle who was a painter and a number of cousins. So it was an artistic mm. family, and I, I was brought up around artists and in the arts. And And you were obviously attracted to, to drama. You, you studied drama in college, correct? Yes, I did. I um, from, a, a, from an early age, I enjoyed being in school productions, and um, uh, sometime in my teen years, um, I started, I would get on stage, and suddenly I would realize that I would sort of just take things over. I mean, I had a uh, a quality on stage that uh, was, is, I guess, is a gift. I'm very grateful for, but I had the ability to grab an audience, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I never, I never, never even went to college. I was going to, but uh, I just got, I got swept away and went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where I spent one year there, and then, um, then began teaching after a year. Um, and I, I taught there, and I taught at uh, Gene Franklin Theater Workshop and um, at the American Mime Theater in New York. So um, I, I became involved very early on. Yeah, and tell me about mime, um, the allure of mime, and, and, and what differentiate, differentiates it from, you know, straight narrative kind of drama for you. Well, you know, there are actually many forms of mime. Um, the, the, the the mime that I, I did, which was uh, from the American Mime Theater, uh, a gentleman named Paul Curtis had, had devised it. It was based on both traditional mime forms and method acting. It was a, a combination of the two. And it wasn't exactly the white-faced mime you might see standing on a street corner, you know, being a statue or walking right. doing the moonwalk. <clears throat> All of those techniques we could do, but uh, um, you know, and I I could do the uh, we the, we call the moonwalk. Actually, in mine we call it walking in place. And there are a number of different kinds of uh, walks one does. But uh, there's a there's a, an extensive vocabulary of movements that mimes learn, because it's basically acting without words, and you have to express yourself without using words. Mm-hmm. And uh, I. I just had a gift for it, Jamie. I mean, I, I could just do it. I could do it from a um, very early on. I, I became the lead performer at the American Mime Theater one year after I, I, I even was first exposed to mime. Um, when other people had been studying for years, uh, I just I had a gift for it, and uh, I'm 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 blessed. So prior to uh, meeting with Mr. Kubert for 2001, I. I I suppose you did a lot of kind of animal work, animal mime, and that kind of thing. Yes, I. You know, there's a there's a technique in mime we call controls, where you use you use an animal, sort of a, a mental image of an animal, or the or uh, to to develop movement, so that you might you might be playing a, uh, a human character, but you might use a, an animal as the basis for that. You know, to to, to get extended, large, uh, expressive movement, mm-hmm. and. Um, I had uh, 
I had I had played a number of characters which I had I had used uh, uh, apes or monkeys as uh, as sort of the control to get to the character. As a matter of fact, I even during the years uh, I was uh, at the Mime Theater in New York, I had a pet monkey and a pet marmoset, and uh, so I, I had a monkey as a roommate. <laughs> Uh, and and is that how Kubrick became aware of of your work? That's how he reached out to you. No, it was a it was an interesting uh, uh, how that happened. I was uh, I was in London at the time, and I was um, I was not performing that much. I was teaching at that point, and I was teaching my was teaching a professional uh, mind for for professional actors. And um, was doing some uh, uh, small performances, but my focus at that point is I had uh, been developing a, a, a bunch of new ideas about um, mimetic movement, and I was, I was teaching to try to uh, understand how it how I how I could pass it on to other performers. And um, I had been I had been one of the producers of a very large poetry reading at the Albert Hall in London. Mm-hmm. With Allen Ginsberg and uh, uh, you know a bunch of major uh, uh, beat poets, and one of the other producers was close friends with a fellow named Mike Wilson, who um, had done some books on skin diving with Arthur Clarke. And Arthur had told Mike that he and Stanley were um, didn't really know how to prog- progress with the opening of of the picture, and they were they would thought they would be great to talk to a mime, and and Mike told. Um, my friend John Esam and Johnny said, "Well, gee, I know a mime. His name is Dan Richter." And so that's how I was brought together, and and uh, was approached by uh, Stanley's people, and they said, uh, uh, "You know, Mr. Kubrick would like to um, to talk to you about how a mime might solve uh, some problems he has uh, with um, his picture he's shooting." And would you do that? And I I said, "Sure. I know who he is. Boy, that's, I was impressed. I was excited." <laughs> Yeah, you know, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't looking for a job uh, uh, because at that point I was, uh, I was, I was very busy with what I was doing, and I had never thought of myself as a, a film actor. But I thought, boy, I'd love to talk to Stanley Kubrick. That would be exciting. And I and I went out and met with Stanley, and we hit it off immediately. And he he effectively uh, proposed that I come work with him almost immediately. Wow. So what what stage were they? At with that opening sequence when you came on board, it, conceptually did they did they have kind of an an arc and a structure to it? What were they missing before you came? Oh on yeah, board? there was a script. <clears throat> there had been a script all along from 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 uh, since they had begun shooting. They, uh, they I, I went out to see them. I guess in um, oh it must have been about September October of sixty seven. And they had already started shooting around Christmas of '65, so all of the live action had been shot. Everything, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, Kirtley and Gary Lockwood had already left, and um, but they had not been able to shoot this opening sequence, which they had a full script for, but they had not been able to shoot it. Sets had been built. Uh, they had done numerous tests on all different kinds of, you know, uh, dancers and actors and stunt people and. Um, uh, it was an amazing array of, of, of people had come through that Stanley had had done tests on, and fairly large sets had been built that he had just rejected. He just he just nothing was right in his point of view, and you, and, and and Stanley was like that. He he never 
never settled for anything unless it was it, that he felt he had he had gotten the right right thing. So it was really late in the day, and um, when he pulled me in and he said, "Well, we've got to shoot this in in six weeks or ten weeks, something like that, down in down in Spain." And um, can you do this? Can you get involved in this? And I said, well, I can do it, but Stanley, I, I don't think we're going to shoot in Spain in 10 weeks. I, this is very technically very difficult to do and will take a lot of uh, uh, work to develop the costumes and uh, to train the, find the people and train the people. I think it's more like 10 months, not 10 weeks. And, and nor do I think we'll end up shooting outdoors. I think we'll end up shooting on the set so that you can have more control because it's, it's going to be technically very difficult mm -hmm. and um i think most directors would have told me to take a hike at that point but uh stanley it, it suddenly it, i could see that he could say wow this guy this guy's into something here well this is interesting you know, <laughs> the idea of, of more work more detailed work and doing a, a, a you know a more complex and thorough job really appealed to him so he said okay let's give it a try you know yeah and, uh, he was he was very meticulous uh, and, and he offered, I, I, I would think, he offered the actors, the performers, the luxury of, of, of time to, to discover things on their own, I, I would think. Very much so, Jamie. And I think he's been misunderstood in some extent in this way. You know, I know actors have, have complained that he wouldn't tell them what to do. And, um, you know, traditional traditional actors. And the, the thing about Stanley is that he might have done a year, a year and a half in preparation, detailed, meticulous preparation for a scene. But the moment the camera started turning and he could start see, he could see what was going on in the frame, he was ready for whatever happened, and he was prepared to change and evolve. And um, he expected the actors to bring to it. He didn't. He didn't want to tell the actors what to do. He wanted the actors to to bring their creativity to it. You know. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the you know he often you know as people say oh he did so many takes well we would do many takes but each take became, quite often was different it wasn't we were trying to get it the exact way he wanted it to start with it was that we discovered things as the takes went on and the scene actually the shot would actually evolve you know over the takes so the final takes might be quite different than the original ones rather than a, a simply a fine-tuning of the original ones or getting the original ones right. Yeah. And how? And tell me more about how he directed. Obviously, did it start out he, he wanted to see what you brought to the table and then he'd have input and a conversation would ensue? How was What was yeah. that working process? Very much so. I was... I was uh, I was lucky. We shot uh, what they called MOS without sound, um, okay. so um, on, and I had a mask on, so I was actually able to talk to Stanley uh, many times. Uh, you know, and he'd be talking all the time, and and um, and we would uh, we would literally be evolving things, literally, uh, you know, as as it. Uh, as it progressed, you know, and and then between takes, you know, he would say, "Well, you know, that was really good. I love the way that bone sort of sort of spun. Oh, I thought that was a mistake." So, no, 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 keep that in. Let's do so. Let's build on that, you know. Hmm. And and um, so it was a there was a, a, a create. See, thing about Stanley is that everybody thinks, "Oh, he was probably a you know like a dictator. He had to be everything had to be exactly his way." And it wasn't like that at all. It was a he was a 
he loved to work with people. He loved to he, he loved to hear everybody's ideas. He was always ready to uh, accept a, an idea different than his. He saw it all as a uh, this wonderful, complex, beautiful process that was taking place, and and everybody which everybody was hopefully everybody was sharing in. Um, mm-hmm. An example of that, Jamie, is that there was a we had this big outside next to his office. There was a conference room. And a great big table with green baize covering on it, and um, he would have be having a me. He would ask me. I'm the I'm the choreographer of just the opening scene, and he would ask me to sit in on meetings that had to do with things that had absolutely nothing to do with my scene. He wanted to know what I thought about it, or I'd be in rushes, and he'd be he'd be they'd be doing um, uh, you know some shots on some models for uh, a piece later on in the picture, and he'd say, Well, Dan, what do you think about that? Hmm. And uh, it would be the reverse would happen, so that um, uh, you know uh, Doug Trumbull, who wasn't necessarily working on on uh, you know the eight sequence, you know he'd be in meetings. He'd say, Doug, what do you think about this? You know. Wow. So he, he wanted everybody involved. Well, he he didn't want to. He saw us all as assets, his assets. Yes. You know? Yeah. And he didn't want to waste any of his assets at all. He wanted to get the most out of everybody. Yeah. You you had to have been aware, you and and, and your group of performers, uh, that this was a really special, groundbreaking kind of project. I mean, it, it's it it's right there in the description of of your segment. It's the Dawn of Man sequence. I mean, this is as ambitious as it gets. What, what was the feeling like on that set? Was there an excitement among the performers? Well. First of all, you have to see it in context. The the picture was running way way over budget. Uh, it was so different than what anybody had shot before. We didn't know whether whether the audience was even going to accept it or not. You know, you have to remember before that nobody had shot a science fiction film as anything other than effectively a B movie. You know, with, right. Uh, you know, uh, you know. You can think of those old Flash Gordon movies with, you know, it looked like a, a, a tube with a sparkler at one end, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, yeah. hanging on a thread. So this was this was very revolutionary, and we knew that this was either going to be one of the greatest pictures of all time or one of the greatest flops of all time, but mm-hmm. we didn't know which one, and, and <laughs> it was, you know, we really didn't, and 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 when you. When we were shooting, you have to understand something. For us, we're on a set where the temperature is going up to close to 130 degrees because of, uh, for technical reasons, that we had to get the color temperature right between, between the front projection and the and the, the set in front of the uh, set and us in front of the pre- color uh, the, the the front projection. So the an immense amount of light had to be brought. On there, and there was just arrays and arrays of, of bulbs above us, uh, large brutes, you know, the arc lamps, you know, rows of arc lamps, um, 20Ks, 10Ks, 5Ks all over the place. So it was incredibly hot in there. In those costumes as well. And we're wearing these costumes, which are basically body wigs. Uh, I had originally, one of the things I had done at the Early on, working with Stuart Freeborn, was pointed out that we had the, the costumes had to be much lighter and and more responsive, so we could see 
see what people looked like. You could, you, the body could be more expressive. But yeah. anyway, it was also dusty on those sets. They were dirty and dusty. Um, we were wearing um, uh, uh, things in our eyes to change the color uh, of, of our eyes. The, uh, the, the, the masks were such that you could hardly breathe in them. Uh, a, a, a British Equity had uh, come down with a ruling that uh, something like we could, they couldn't have to, takes longer than a minute, and um, you know we had to have the, um, the, the we had nurses on 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 the, uh, on the uh, off uh, off camera or wow. waiting with with tanks full of compressed air, and they would shove tubes into the costumes the minute the the shouted cut, they'd run out and shove tubes into the costume and flush our flush us out to try to get our body heat down, open the backs up, take the helmet, the the, uh, the, uh, the the masks off. It was uh, it was very so we were battling to be able to just perform. Because yeah. On top of all this, you're trying to be creative. You're trying to um, do very. It's very difficult choreography because the uh, you're basically. Have you ever tried to duck walk? Do a duck walk? You know. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? right. now imagine imagine performing in this heavy costume in this te- these temperatures with this this dusty set under uh uh, uh and do very specific choreography in, all in a duck walk you know mm. uh, so you're not thinking about much else except what you're focused on at the, mo- the moment i mean for me i was trying to focus on on what i what what was required of that take at that time, these specific things of it, uh, because it was a battle to get them. Yeah. Well, you you spoke of finding things in the, in the multiple takes and things just kind of developing organically. What were what were some of those the the scenes or characteristics of those characters that came across that that were not necessarily on the page that came through because of that process? Well. Um, I guess the most famous thing is everybody talks about you know the great cut where the uh, you know yeah. I throw the bone in the air and uh, there's uh, it, it cuts to the um, the satellite uh, you know bombs uh, one of the satellite bombs um, uh, you know in orbit around the Earth uh, three or four million years later now that's not in the, that wasn't in the script. That that transition wasn't in the script. That wasn't in the script. Okay. Wow. And, and now, and so what is the genesis of it? You go back. And there's the you have the scene where um, you know we've seen the the obelisk. The the apes have been exposed to the obelisk, and 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 then the next morning, I get up and I go out and I get the idea to pick up a bone and start killing things. You know, so that mm-hmm. we can evolve. By the way, so the idea is so that we'll evolve into. Uh, Humans, you know, uh, it's mm-hmm. set us on the road of evolution, and that that's a whole other story. It goes back to Robert Audrey's idea of the territorial imperative and all that stuff. But anyway, so but so in that scene, I wanted to, you know, Stanley. I looked down. Stanley had was using Nikon lenses, and I could see this. He was using a portrait lens, so I knew I was going to be really big in the frame, you know. And I I, th- I was thinking to myself, well, I want to keep all the movements small. You know, because I don't want to take away. I want, I want, I want it because the the key for me is going to. I'm going to tilt my head slightly to the side mm-hmm. to show that I'm getting an idea, and so that's what I was focusing on. 
and 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 Stanley uh, and and we hadn't really discussed what I was going to do. So I, I knew I was going to pick up a bone, and rather than just pick up the bone and whack the skull, I was going to sort of you know feel it, and, you know examine it because this is I've never picked anything up before. You know, this is the mm-hmm. first time I've ever done anything like this, so it's new. I don't even know how to hold a bone, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, I start going forward. I go out and I reach down and pick up the bones and play, play with it a little bit, handle it, and I tentatively hit hit a few bo- the things on the ground, the bones on the ground, and one of the bones flips up in the air, you know, because mm. it, they're they're, they're they're, you know, the, the way they're shaped. You hit one end, and the other end will pop. It'll, it'll make it pop up in the air. And mm-hmm. I said, "Oh, I'm sorry, Stanley." And he said, "No, no, that's good. Leave it, leave it, leave it." You know. So I finished the take, and I crashed the skull and everything. And he said afterwards, he said, "Boy, I said, oh, I'm sorry about that bone." He said, "No, no, that's." He said, "I liked it. I liked it. It really worked." So we said, "Okay." He said, "Now this time, hit hit the bone on purpose on that little end, so it'll pop up." And so we did another take and. It worked again and said, so, great, well, that was great, let's do it. So then we started putting the bones all over. Exactly. <laughs> so I do it. So now when I'm hitting the bones, they're popping all over the place, you know, and then up and I crash the thing and, and uh, great. So now that one little thing started it going. Next thing is the, um, the one of the tapirs was running around the, uh, the set, and the set was raised up. The set had to be able to rotate. So it was raised off the ground some places, 6 to 12 feet off the ground. Tapirs had flown off and had broken his neck and it was dead. So we had this dead tapir, which Stanley immediately had them throw in the freezer <laughs> so we could use it, you know. And so we, you know, he did the shot of dropping, the tapir dropping, you know, when I, when I, I, whacked, the, uh, when I whacked the skull. And uh, so now that extended that a little bit. Now we've we've went on and finished shooting with all the the guys over the next week or two, but then when it was done, when it was when it was, we thought we had wrapped. Stanley said, "Okay, now what we've got to do? We've got to take this you breaking the bones, and we got to take that further." He says, "I, I want to see the clouds in the sky above you, you know, because we were yeah. shooting everything inside. So this moment, he wants to, you know, wants to to to, to break break down that 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 restriction and see, so." We built a platform outside and we went out and started doing smashing the things out there and and whatnot and getting the low angle shot and um, and at, at at this point he's saying no 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 you know when you throw the bone in the air we've got to do we've got to slow it down you know so okay now we're trying to find cameras uh, uh, high high speed motors for the camera to move this 65 millimeter film through faster and of course the film is tearing you know we crank the motor up. Film is tearing in the gate and whatnot, and, and um, we stopped. And we say to stop for a week or two. And we did research on high-speed cameras. I went off and I was looking at these cameras that that uh, big rotating prism cameras. And well, we could do that, but it doesn't look right. And then we got some some motors came in from uh, from LA that were able to get the film a bit faster. And then I came up with the idea of well, I'll just mime. I'll slow down my movements. And you can speed you speed the camera up to get the slow motion, and maybe we can get the speed you want. And so finally, we got to that, and we're we're doing that now. Arthur turns up, Arthur Clark turns up, and he and Stanley are talking. And Stanley is and, and Arthur are walking after one day of shooting, are walking back to his um, his office. And Stanley picks up a broomstick as they're talking and starts swinging it like you know, the bone in my hand. 
And suddenly mm-hmm. he throws it in the air and he watches it spin. And he grabs it again, throws it, and watches it spin. And he says to Arthur, you know, that's it. And so, but, well, of course, that resulted in the cut and everything, et cetera. Yeah. But look, Jamie, this all started three or four weeks before with that little, that me hitting that bone just in a little way so it moved a little more than I thought it should. And Stanley took that one thing and went through a series of stages to evolve it. Now, that wasn't in the script. But that Isn't became... The, you know, what strikes me about you telling me this is, is first of all, how, how Mr. Kubrick was was so amazing at facilitating those kinds of discoveries, but also just how amazing the creative process is in general and mysterious and in such a discovery uh, you know that that must be so so satisfying for a performer and an opportunity like that that you rarely you rarely get from other directors well abs- absolutely and 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 the it's uh, it's almost in, it's, it's incomparable i mean the mm-hmm. the you know i i basically worked with stanley for over a year now we not only did we do the the opening sequence, which did take us about uh, ten months, you know, to, wow. to get to it, and then there was uh, um, about six weeks of shooting. But afterwards, I went on and and stayed on because Stanley and I were trying to create an alien, which of course yeah. never got used. But we we tried all kinds of things. Uh, we you know, um, at one point he painted me black and and. Put white polka no painted me white no white and put black polka dots all over me or white and put black polka or whatever and shot it in high high contrast film and set on a on a background that was the same so we were trying to create points of light moving in the field of light and we tried all kinds of things and uh, I also did some work uh, with Con Pedersen on some stuff for the Stargate sequence so creativity I, can you imagine I was in heaven I mean yeah. I was just for, for, and I was working with one of the great geniuses of, of, of the 20th century, one of the great artistic geniuses of the 20th century. I was working with him all day long for over a year, and he was letting me do my thing. You know, mm. it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was as close as close to heaven on earth as you can get. Give me a sense of your feelings and, and impressions the first time you viewed the finished cut. Well, I saw the, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I was watching, you see, I have to understand, I was watching rushes every day all the time, okay, mm-hmm. and during the the process where the Dawn of Man was being cut, I was watching cuts of that all the time, and I also, because we had to produce sound afterwards, uh, I was, uh, I, I pretty much knew what it was going to look like. I also had seen an awful lot of the picture already, you know. Okay. But uh, so I had a, I had a pretty good idea of where it was all going. Then there was probably three months that I didn't see anything, and then I went to the the premiere in uh, in London, and of course it knocked my socks off, you know, yeah. because uh, you know. I had never I had never seen it in the in the big you know the full big Cinerama print you know uh, clean print whatnot I always always been looking at work print or answer prints and um, 
I'd never, I'd never seen it just as like an audience uh, member. And, mm-hmm. of course, it, it, it did completely blow me away. But I, I will say that it wasn't until probably the, what, it, what would have, uh, let's see, it was probably a good 25, 30 years later when I saw it again and hadn't seen it for a number of years that I realized how good it was. I, up to that point, it was very hard for me. Yes, it blew me away, but I could still see so much of the the, the, the seams and the costume. You know, the little right. It's hard to separate right. yourself from the experience of making it when you're watching it. Very much so. And then yeah. it was. It must have been oh, t- ten or fifteen years ago. I remember the. I got a call here in uh, in Los Angeles and. Uh, they said, oh, we're having, uh, the, I guess it's the 30th anniversary screening, a 35th anniversary, something like that. And um, over at the, um, uh, the, the academy, and uh, will you come, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, yeah, you know, that would be great. And, um, and I remember I was, I'm a mountain climber, and I'd hurt my foot, and I, was on a, wearing a, I had a cane, and I was a little embarrassed about being there. And I turned up, and I parked my car where they told me to park it, and I come around the corner, and there's, these spotlights going in the sky and just this incredible crowd, you know, and, um, uh, you know, somebody, some some helper ran out and grabbed, Mr. Richter, Mr. Richter grabbed me and pulled me in, you know, up through through the crowd and everybody's shouting and screaming and Tom Hanks comes up and shakes my hand and says, my God, this is going to be the 35th time I've seen it and I admire your work. And I'm totally surrounded. I'm suddenly, I'm swept away with this whole thing. And we went and, you know, it's just like I'm, you know, I, I hadn't performed in years, you know. I just turned into just a working Hollywood executive, you know. And uh, 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 suddenly, it's all coming back to me, and I the lights come up, and there's my scene, and oh my God, this really is good. Yeah. Uh, you know, suddenly I could see it like an audi- like a member of the audience at last. But I it needed it needed those decades to pass for it to happen. It was also a gorgeous print that Stanley had put together. Well, your your contribution to cinema is is profound. I mean, I, I cannot think of a more iconic sequence in in, in series of <clears throat> of moments uh, than than the ones that you brought to life in that opening sequence of that film. You had to have a sense of this kind of legendary status that that film and and that opening sequence in particular. Well, I, the yeah, I do. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of that. I get, you know, I get, I get, you know, fan mail and stuff like that. And, and uh, whenever I go, if I whenever I don't go, I, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who likes to go around to all these things where you sign, you know, give right, autographs, right. you know, the conventions and things. I, I'm shy, and I, I tend to avoid those kind of things. But I do go, and I do get it. I mean, I, I get how important it is, and I think that, uh, with, without. You know, fear of hubris here, but the I'm a very detailed worker, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm a, and I'm a perfectionist, and um, I also never would, you know, and I've worked in some other pictures, but you know, it's all done very quickly and it's very unsatisfying uh, most of the time, unless you're a major star and they're, you know, they're they're letting you have your head and do what you're going to do, but the um, the it, it, Stanley and I were able to work for these great long periods of time. If I would, if I would, I'd come to Stanley and say, Stanley, I'm really not happy with this. 
they said, well, let's throw it out. I, I see what you're saying. Let's throw it out. You know, we start again, and we work again, and we work and work and work. And the physical work that went into that was just incredible. You know, the guys, my guys, the uh, the other man apes, say that I was like a marine sergeant. You know, <laughs> I had I, I had a I carried a, a stick to int- intimidate them all. And um, you know, we had a, a around near the, the the rehearsal studio. We had we had this the big back lot that was probably oh almost a half a mile or so around this big field there. And if anybody there was any infringement of anything or they, you know, they looked like they were sorry about I made them run laps, you know, and mm. push up <laughs> and, uh, because I knew how difficult it was going to be. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, and I and I also and I wanted to I wanted to prepare them for it, but I also knew that we had to the key to look, the key to any to art working is willing suspension of disbelief. The audience knows it's reading a book. The audience knows it's looking at a movie. The audience knows it's seeing a play or an opera or things. It's that moment when the audience doesn't care anymore and gives up and suspends that disbelief and goes with it. Right. Because, you know, and the, the the problem I had was that I've got people in costumes, you know, in monkey costumes, ape, ape, and ape costumes, and. They're not. You can never make a costume. Well, maybe today with you know the digital world that we live in, but you effectively can't make a costume that looks so real that you believe it's real. You, mm-hmm. you have to. You have to get there through acting values and other other devices. And so, I was very aware of that from the very beginning. You know, and I made that clear to Stanley that first day I met him that I felt that every character up there every every um, performer up there had to be a specific character playing with had specific objectives and uh you know classical acting rules you know yes and and it, it, that was the only way it was going to work you know and 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 we did do that you know but it took an immense amount of work to do that i think any other any other director wouldn't wouldn't have let me go that far, or wouldn't have asked that much of me. Conversely, yeah. Over the years, uh, after you finished 2001, did you have any interactions at all with Mr. Kubrick until his death? Yeah, you know, I did. Uh, not a lot because you know when Stanley, uh, it's, when he goes from project to project, he he uh, it's like it's like. He's good, it's like a divorce and is remarried again, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's so totally involved. Uh, I was, uh, at one point, I had, um, I was helping uh, uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono out with some projects they were doing, and I had, uh, I was living at their house out in, in Ascot, because Yoko's mm-hmm. a little buddy. And um, we, uh, they were doing all these film projects, and I, you know, um, many of which are not even remembered now, but they were, they were very experimental, many of them. But the, the, um, I had designed a, an editing table, or I had Prevos. I had given, had built an editing table down in Italy. Uh, this is before the Steenbecks and the flatbeds were. You know, this is still back in the days of um, of the stand-up motor, Motorola editing machines. And I had uh, Prevos uh, in Italy, which was uh, built for down there. Also, were building flatbed tables, and I 
And John Yoko wanted a table where they could have both 35 or 16 millimeter film and have multiple, you know, three heads and and and, and magnetic magnetic um, pickups on it so they could get decent sound. And so I designed this table, and which was being delivered, you know, up and. Stanley had heard heard about it through a mutual friend of ours, Malcolm Kafitz, Kafitz who had Kafitz cameras in London and used to sell Stanley all his his cameras. And um, and Malcolm had told that Stan had heard about this table I designed and told Stanley. And so Stanley wanted to know if he could borrow the table if it wasn't being used right now, you know, because he's got to be interested in it, you know. And so I, I went to John Yoko, and they they were they were lost in this. Um, uh, with this fellow named Janoff, a primal scream thing, and they were doing all this primal scream therapy, and they were they were about to go off to um, Los Angeles uh, for a few months uh, with Janoff to continue the therapy they were doing, and so um, I, I I said to them, well, you know, why don't we loan it to Stanley because he's he's got he's making this movie Clockwork Orange, and he'd love to use it, and they mm-hmm. said, oh, that's that's cool, Stanley Kubrick, <laughs> know, you know, John thought that was great, you know. And so I went out to uh, I went out to uh, his, the house that he and Christiana, his, he and his wife Christiana, lived in at that point called Abbott's Mead, and to help set it up. And I got out there in the morning, and Stanley already had got the, uh, one of the first Steenbecks, and he still had a couple Motorolas, and the Prevost was being set up all in this big garage. He had a big three or four car garage there. It was a big estate, and it was all being set up in his garage. And I went out, and we. Uh, uh, he showed me some of Clockwork Orange, and uh, and we spent the day walking around talking, which was great because we hadn't seen each other for almost two years. Yeah, and um, we had a wonderful time together. And uh, I was I was into I was helping John Yoko design their office so they could have security, which and Stanley loved security. He was really into it, you know. And we were discussing shredders, you know, shredding machines and the best mm. Telex rigs and. You know, <laughs> All this stuff, and and uh, we had a wonderful day together. But um, yeah. I didn't. Uh, after that, I, I hardly hardly saw him. I, we did. I did have some communications with letters. We'd written in those days. We'd write letters to each other, and and I was in fact just about. To, I was waiting for um, uh, um, Full Metal, not Full Metal Jacket, the the, the last one. Yeah, I just wanted Shut to be finished because uh, I was going to get in touch with him about uh, Arthur had was encouraging me to write write about um, the Dawn of Man um, since Stanley and I were really the only two people who knew the whole story of how we did that sequence. Mm-hmm. And so I was just about to get in touch with him when he died, and uh, wow. I had been hoping to talk to him, you know, get a chance to spend some time with him to talk about, you know. Putting the book together, but uh, the Moon Watchers memoir, yeah, your your yeah, book, yeah, yeah, and uh, mm. so that's sad. I, 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 you know, I I can remember going over there, uh, oh, shortly after he died, and going out to um, the 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 estate, um, and um, with uh, spending time with my friend Tony Fruin, who was Stanley's long term assistant, and, and yeah, had come on at two thousand one and. And and I remember and saw Christiana and, and Jan Harlan, and um, walking through the building there, um, uh, and the just the endless piles of boxes, yeah, and yeah, films and uh, you know because everything had they had this 
he and Christiana had this large estate out there, um, which he had eventually moved into after Abbott's Mead, which is surrounded by other estates. So you have to go through other estates to get, you know, he's really secluded. And it was uh, vast, a big old building with lots and lots of rooms. And, uh, and, and the rooms, aside from the bedrooms in this immense kitchen, kitchen where he could get all the the family together and dogs and cats and and because he was a he was a very warm warm-hearted family man uh, mm-hmm. and not at all the eccentric people probably a little eccentric sure he was a, you know he's a great artist artist great artist had <laughs> to be eccentric but he was a very open person and um, you know and he, he had a very rich uh, private life uh, but anyway the rooms just everything was piled and um, and I can remember. Talking with his his uh, his, uh, uh, his daughter, and she says to me, "Dan, Dad had so loved pens. What do I do with all these pens?" And she had piles and piles of fountain pens, you know, mm-hmm. different kinds of pens, you know. And Stanley just kept everything, you know. Uh, he, I think, every letter that was ever written, every book he ever read, all the research, everything that was ever done was kept, and he had he had special boxes designed, you know. I saw that documentary that that Stanley Kubrick's boxes where they yeah. unearthed a thousand of his boxes and, and went through the contents and it was yeah. endlessly fascinating. Yeah, that's all all gone over to the uh, the film school at Elephant and Castle now, and that's, that's mm-hmm. where I'm sending all my stuff. Uh, uh, most most of my best uh, my notes and all of that are with uh, the German Film Museum now, and. Uh, but I'm once it's once that it's a traveling show. Once that's finished, everything's going up there. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful collection. Yeah. When you, last question for you: When you think back on on Mr. Kubrick, what what do you most cherish about him? I think his smile. You know. Uh, you know mm-hmm. his sense of humor. Um, you you always you always felt like when he was talking to you that you were talking to your 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 Best best friend. Uh, I, I I guess maybe everybody doesn't think that way. I think some people were intimidated by him, and and you know and he's he certainly didn't didn't work out. But for me, it was it was the opposite. We just were. I just en- I just enjoyed being with him, and I enjoyed the humor, and the fact that we would meet to talk about one thing and talk about everything else in the yeah, world imaginable yeah. at that meeting. You know, that's something about him. He seemed to be. Endlessly uh, interested and fascinated by all kinds of things. I mean, just Absolutely. anything. Absolutely. You know, I had I had uh, published some poetry reviews uh, of, uh, of what I guess were called the Beat Poets. You know, Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and people like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, which was saying I was very interested in, and he was fascinated. He would he wanted to know what Bill Burroughs was like, and you know that kind of stuff. Or or we would discuss. You know, Napoleonic strategy. You know, you could sit there discussing, you know, the Battle of Austerlitz all day with him. You know, hmm. and or or, you know, just just everything under the sun. And and it was and he had incredibly Catholic taste, and he was so well informed. I mean, his office was just piled with books. Uh, you know, there was just books coming in all the time, and of course, poor Tony would be trying to you know read them and write write. You know, Stanley would hand Tony a pile of books and say, "Can you can you read these, please, and tell me what's in them?" You know, and you know, mark them and things. You know, for him. 